dozens of passages in the New Testament that speak to our need to care for the poor. Here were two of those passages from that morning. 1 John 3, 17. But if anyone has the world's goods and deeds and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Deuteronomy 15, 11. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother and to the needy, to the poor in your land. And part of that sermon, uh, one of the illustrations that I used or one of the situations that I shared about was that of South Sudan, who right now in the midst of their civil war has over 8 million people who are in their word, in the, the words that we use to describe their situation, extreme and deadly hunger. Eight million people. One article that I quoted from described their situation, unprecedented, catastrophic, humanitarian crisis. That millions will not make it through this next lean season because they are hungry or because of the war or because they are on the run. And so as we considered the need of South Sudan as we considered God's word as a church and part of our Love Your Neighbor series, we said, let's make sacrifices and let's give so that we can care for some of these people in South Sudan who have, who have as refugees, run to Uganda and who now need clean water. And so we worked, we partnered with Never Thirst, and, and we, we had a goal as a church from our preschoolers to our adults that we would raise, after making sacrifices, $16,000. This would cover uh, putting in a well. This would cover all the parts and all the labor. This would cover training the, little, the, the tribe, how to maintain the well, how to make rules for the wells. And, and, and so this was our goal. And over the last five weeks, it's been, it's been fun and encouraging to see our church, especially our children, really step up to, to this project. Bake sales and yard sales and lemonade sales, piggy bank raids. One, one boy broke into his piggy bank and gave every single dime that he had. And all the, all the different ways, all the chores, one boy gave birthday money, all the ways that we heard of this church, of you um, making sacrifices to give to this cause. And as a staff, as elders, I mean, we, we were blown away by the generosity. We tallied up all the coins, lots of coins. The bank helped us. All the checks and all the cash. And our total over the last five weeks was $34,277.02. So two wells, two wells, plus another eighth of a well. And we, I mean, blown away. And so thank you for hearing God's word. Thank you for responding to the word of God and being generous and sacrificial. And so now we're, we're going to pray for these, for these wells, for this, these opportunities. And what, what's going to happen is we're going to get the money to never thirst and they're going to keep us up to date with where they're building. We're going to have locations of exactly where these wells are. And now as, as kids, the project's not over. Um, we commit to praying that the opportunities for clean water in Uganda would be a bridge 
to share about the living water and the hope of Jesus. And so now that's what we pray. That is, people, we, God knows the first person that's going to come have a drink of water, and that is he places pastors and missionaries and his never thirst works with Christians who are going to be at the well. We pray that as they share the hope of Jesus, that they would receive it like they received the water with open hearts. And so to that end, let's pray, and then we'll read, our, read the word this morning. Father, we do thank you. I thank you for this church and for the moms and dads and the adults and the kids um, who are examples of sacrificial, over-the-top, generous giving. And God, I, I've been so encouraged and challenged. Our kids are teaching us so many important lessons. And so we thank you, God, for what you've taught us through this, through this opportunity. But God, even more than that, we pray that as these, as these wells are built and people start to come to have drinks of clean water, God, that they would have the opportunity to hear about the living water, the hope that we have in your son, Jesus Christ. The right missionary or the right pastor or the right Christian would be there. And just like your son did with the woman at the well, this would be a perfect situation to talk about the hope that we have in you. And so, God, that's what we pray, that this would, these wells would be bridges, easy conversation starters, God, that they would get to, to hear about your son, Jesus Christ. So we lift it up to you as never thirst, all the logistics and where and all the ways that they do this so wisely. We pray for them, and, and we just pray that you would continue to work in this situation. And God, now as we open up your word, we want to hear from you according to the truth of your word today. Encourage us and convict us, lead us to be more like your son, Jesus Christ, because of the, the study of your word. And I pray that this morning we would not miss the teaching of your word, that no stress or no problem or no whatever would keep us from hearing from you today. And so God bless this time. It's in the name of your son we pray. Amen. We're going to be in 1 Samuel 3. If you have a Bible, we're going to read the whole chapter, 1 through 21. Kids, welcome to the service. We're glad to have you. You doing good? Wide awake? Okay, good. It's a great passage, a great story. The story of young Samuel hearing the voice of God. Verse 1, now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel, and he said, here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call you, lie down again. So he went and lay down, and the Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, here I am, for you have called me. But he said, I did not call you, my son, lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time. 
And he arose and he went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood, calling at, a, at other times. As calling as at other times. Samuel, Samuel, Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. The Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Verse 15, Samuel lay until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and Samuel was afraid to tell the vision of e to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, here I am. And Eli said, what was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from, from me all of, of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. And Samuel grew and the Lord was with him. And let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And you get to a passage like this, you got to start by thinking, how do we teach this? What is the lesson for us, as we read about this very specific situation, God calls Samuel with his voice. When you look at sermons or you read books, a lot of the ways that we study a passage like this is saying this is, this is a primer. This is a lesson teaching us how we too might hear the voice of God. Now, this, this is very common from pastors, evangelicals, non-evangelicals, charismatic, non-charismatic, anywhere and everywhere, very common to take a story like this and say, plug ourselves into the story. I am Eli. That's unfortunate. I'm Eli. You are Samuel. And the way that we understand this passage for us today is that I am teaching you how to hear the verbal and vocal voice of God. Now that's somewhat frightening. You hopefully can hear my hesitation with this understanding of how to understand the Old Testament, specifically this passage. Yet this is how often this very passage is taught. I was home from work on Monday, sitting out with Ashley on the porch, telling her about this story of Samuel and Eli and hearing God's voice. And she's sitting there smiling. I mean, she knows this story. She grew up in the church. And I, I was just sharing how interesting of a story this is. Samuel hears God's voice. Eli's the one that tells him it's going to be God. Yet the message he finally gets 
from God is very ironically a message of judgment against the one who clued him in that it was God in the first place. And she said to me, as we're sitting on the porch, I remember learning this passage when I was five years old. And I said, I can't remember what I taught last Sunday, much less when I was five, but she was smiling. She said, vividly remember the, the classroom that I was in, Miss Sargent, the flannel graph that was being used, and, and how she went home. And, and the reason she said she remembered this, this particular story was that it jostled her. It really caused her to think, is this how God could speak to me? Is, this, is God going to call me tonight? She said she went to bed that night and like nervous, like, what if God calls me by name? And she said, all of a sudden, I thought as I'm sitting there freaking out, did, did God just call me? Did I just hear my name? She said she went over to her parents' room. They said, no, wasn't us. She said, well, it must, must have been to God then. What, what's the message of judgment he has for me today? But this is this is what can happen when we study a passage like 1 Samuel, that God speaks to us at night by calling us by, calling us by name. And so the question for us is, how are we today to go to a passage like this, and how are we to, to understand it? Is this how God calls us and works still today? And, and Hopefully you get what I'm, I'm saying. This is not, I'm saying this is not the normal speaking and work of God, nor is it the main message of 1 Samuel 3, like so many pastors do. There was one pastor, and I, I like this pastor, but he wrote a book on listening to God, and it's a perfect example. It's a perfect example of how I don't think this passage should be taught. But here's what he says about listening for the voice of God. And maybe you'll pick up on why this is, makes you slightly uncomfortable. Um, he says this, Charles Stanley. He says, if our relationship with him is a one-way trip, there is no communication or dialogue between us and the Lord Jesus Christ. Then there isn't much fellowship. Fellowship is nil when one person does all the talking and the other does all the listening. God still speaks to us today. Because he wants us to develop a love relationship that involves a two-party conversation. And in the book, he talks about how God spoke to him about what grocery store to stop at, what Thanksgiving turkey to buy, and how God told him, told him, this, this is where I want you to go. He goes on to say, we need his definite and deliberate direction for our lives, as did Joshua, Moses, Jacob, or Noah, as his children, we need his counsel for effective decision-making since he wants us to make the right choices. He is still responsible for providing accurate data that comes through his speaking to us. Here's the, the quote that really kind of captured me with this passage. I believe one of the most valuable lessons we can ever learn is how to listen to God. Eli taught Samuel how to listen to God. And if we're going to be men and women of God today, we must learn how to hear what God is saying with us. And so is this what we learn in 1 Samuel? To hear, to wait, to listen to the small voice of God calling us, or is it something different? And so I think it's something different, but I'm going to close this morning with coming back to this, how does God speak 
today? And kids, do we go to bed tonight with one eye open thinking, maybe he's going to call me by name? And so first, the question we have to ask is, what, what is God doing here in 1 Samuel 3? And what is the immediate context for Israel that this would have meant for them in this passage here? And so we've said uh, before the last couple of weeks, I think it's really important when we're studying Old Testament, we're studying a story like 1 Samuel to kind of recognize what it is and what it isn't. This isn't a detailed, exhaustive history book. And if it was, it'd be a really bad one. Okay, this is a theological history where the author is taking this thread or this theme and he's weaving it through these chapters in 1st and 2nd Samuel to teach us about who God is. And so it's really important studying all these individual passages to take them, to study them in view of kind of the big thread or the foundational theological truth of the entire book. And so here's what I'm saying, I believe, is that thread that we see all throughout. I'll put it up on the screen. Since God is reaching into the hopelessness, turmoil, and dysfunction, I'm sorry, God is reaching down into the hopelessness, turmoil, and dysfunction, and he is providentially leading people to worship the one true king. That this is the heart, the heartbeat of this book. That with Hannah, he reached down into her obscurity, into her barrenness. And he changed and worked in her situation providentially, sovereignly, to lead her to the point of 1 Samuel 2, where she's praying and she is worshiping. But it's not just sad situations that God is reaching down into and, and working and guiding. It is also turmoil. It is sin. Sinful, the days of the judges were not pretty days. They were destructive days. The phrase that judges ends with, that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. We did whatever we wanted to, yet we see here, and this is kind of the point of this morning's passage, God is reaching down even into the turmoil, not just the brokenness of Hannah, but into the sin-saturated culture of Israel the dysfunction of the marriage, dysfunction of the spiritual leadership of the temple. God is bigger and he reigns over even our sin and he's reaching down and he's guiding us, the people here in 1 Samuel, to see there is no other king. There's no one holy like the Lord, 1 Samuel 2.2. None like him, no rock like he is. And so 1 Samuel 3, this is a, like a, a little episode teaching us this theme of God is, is reaching down into the sin-filled world and he is guiding it through judgment, judgment to show them that they're not their own little kings, but that he is the one true king. So that's what I think is the big picture of 1 Samuel, how it fits into the big picture of, of 1 Samuel. So let's just kind of quickly look through how that is here in this, in this passage. First, there's darkness. There's sin. Look at verse 1 of chapter 3. The boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. Pair that with the last verse of Judges. Everyone did what was right in their own, own eyes. 
there was no word of God. There was no listening to the direction of God. And when the word of God is absent, there is darkness. And so is the word of God absent today in our churches, in our communities? Is the word present in our lives? Because when we see through history, church history, that when the word of God wasn't being preached, there was darkness. And this was the case for Israel at the end time of the judges. Look at verse 2. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. So we can start to kind of picture in our minds what Eli was like. Chapter 4, we're going to learn that he's heavy. He's, he's overweight. He's a large Man, And so we put these pictures together. He can't see very well. He's laying down again. He was laying down at the front of the temple in chapter 2. He's laying down outside of the temple. He can't see. And this isn't just, I don't think the author here is just giving us a physical description of, of Eli, but I also think he's cluing us in on where he is spiritually. It's, I believe, a spiritual, spiritual metaphor for how Eli is doing. He spiritually is blind. Spiritually blind. I mean, he saw Hannah praying. This is the high priest. What did he think Hannah was doing? He thought she was drunk. He's not fully aware. He can't see what his sons are doing as they take the sacrifices in chapter 2. He's lying down, it says, in his own place. I mean, that would have been odd. The high priest would have been the one that you would expect to be sleeping outside of the room with the ark of God. Not Samuel. Samuel, why was Samuel sleeping there? But why did it tell us Samuel, Eli is sleeping outside or in another room? I think it's just to show us that things were not as they should be. It was a time of darkness, spiritual darkness, the sin of the sons of Eli. I mean, it was gross, and it was profoundly in the face of God as they took the offerings. And they didn't offer them. They took it for themselves, the fat. The people said, well, that's not right. And they threatened the people, and they were sleeping with people, and it was rampant darkness. Yet, remember the theme? God reaches down. It's bad, and there's darkness, and things aren't good, yet God reaches down. Look at verse 3. The lamp of God had not yet gone out. We know the lamp of God would have been in the temple, burned through the night, extinguished in the morning. And so this teaches, shows us when this call for Samuel happened. It happened in the middle of the night. But just like with the description of Eli, I think this is more than just a physical description. I think this is a, a spiritual metaphor showing us that, yes, there is darkness, spiritual darkness, yet there is still hope. There's still hope. There, the, the light is still burning. What was sitting next to the light in this passage? Samuel was lying down. That's the hope in this passage. God reaches down. There's, the light is still burning. There's still hope. And there's young Samuel, the servant Serving in the temple contrasted with Eli, the overweight, 
blind high priest who's sleeping outside of the temple. And this is the contrast. But for us, as we think about, well, as we think, how do we apply this passage? If it's not, uh, if it's not teaching us how to hear God's voice, well, I think part of what this teaches us is that God is still the same today. He still reaches down in our sin and in our darkness today. And so if you come into this room today or you're listening online and you think, I am overwhelmed by my sin, and you know, you, no one knows the depths of my darkness, of my sin, and you start to feel hopeless, you read a passage like this and say, whoa, 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 the, the lamp is still burning. With God, through Christ, we can have hope. Because the God that reached down here in 1 Samuel 3 is the God that still reaches down today. But the passage really is focused on how does God reach down? Right? What is the call of Samuel? And it's this it's really famous story about how Samuel doesn't recognize the voice of God. Four times he goes to Eli. Eli on the third time finally tells him, hey, I think it's God talking to you. But what does he do that fourth time? Did you notice as we were reading it how the fourth call was different than the first three calls? Anyone notice? He didn't just call the fourth time. He came and he stood, is what the text tells us. It's the only time we see God being the subject of that verse, to stand. And you kind of start to think, well, before you finish the passage, God must be angry. I mean, he's calling and calling and calling, yet Samuel doesn't get it. But that's not at all what happens. What do we see about the character of God as he's reaching down to the boy Samuel? Patience. I mean, aren't we thankful for that? Patience and mercy and love as he calls Samuel to be his prophet. We get a little bit of why Samuel didn't hear. If you look at verse 10. Well, let me go back here. Verse 14. Let's see. Let's put it up on the screen. And the Lord came and stood calling as another time, Samuel, Samuel. And he said, speak for your servant hears. Let's go to the next passage, verse 14. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifices or offering forever. So you finally get to the message. Samuel says, here, here I am. Speak to me. And as you're kind of following along the story, you're thinking, what is the message going to be? You're, you're kind of, or I found myself kind of expecting a positive message. A warm message, like there's hope and there's grace and there's love, but you get to the passage and it, this, is not, this is not a positive message. It is a message of judgment. Verse 11, look at how it describes it in verse 11. Your ears are about to tingle. That's an interesting word. I think of a little jingle bell, jingle, 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 but that, that's not what's going on here. It's not like a, like a pleasant little message. This is a loud boom. This was me as a boy when I took a, a 
cap gun, or I don't even know what they're called, the rolls with a little gunpowder on the little red rolls. You know what I'm talking of? And it was long, and, and no, no adults were around. I shouldn't be sharing this with all these kids here. They don't sell these things anywhere, do they? And we took a whole big roll, and we had a vice, a serious vice, and we rolled it up and put the whole roll of caps in there. And we tightened the vice, and we're like, what's going to happen? And we roll and roll, and boom, I mean, it exploded. The neighborhood heard it. We were on the ground crying. We could not hear. We literally could not hear. Uh, th this is the kind of tingle that, that Samuel is being told about. It is not a pleasant little jingle bell. God's judgment is coming. And you think when you hear this message, this is harsh. Is this, is this a harsh message to bring to Eli that, I mean, the word forever, you can't ignore the, verse, the word forever. It's like three times. Punishment and judgment forever, forever, forever. But I don't think this is harsh. I think verse 14, if we go back to verse 14, gives us that clue why I don't think this is harsh. Look again. It says, therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. What, what is implied in this verse is that sacrifice and offering typ typically can atone for and forgive the offender. What is judgment here? God's saying, you have rejected the sacrifice and the atonement offering that I have given you. You've rejected it. The sons of Eli said, the sacrificial system is about me. It is not about making people right with God. It is for us and for our pleasure. And what is judgment here in this passage? Samuel is saying, God has come to tell you, you reject the sacrifice or you eat the sacrifice for pleasure, then you can't have it at the same time as forgiveness. So you you choose it for pleasure, you can't have it forgiveness for forgiveness. And what this what, what God's doing here is that you get what you've been doing all along. And so God is reaching down in his judgment. And listen, the theme stays the same even in this passage. And this is tragic. This is tragedy. Remember, we, we talked about the sons last week. They were worthless. And they did not know the Lord, even though they lived in the temple. And this is really heartbreaking. But we still see the theme. How is it that in judgment, this theme of discovering to worship the one true king, because even in judgment, the knee is bowed. Even in judgment, all will see, even in when you are judged for the sin that you claim and hold on to, when your knee is bowed, you will come to the place where you know he is the one true king, and I have messed up. And so for us, as we think about to me, this is the immediate context here. What, what then is the application? How do we take this passage and say, God, what, what do we learn from this? And I think there's several things, primary things and then secondary things. First is, who are you in this passage? That, remember last week when I talked about praying that my kids would be more like Hannah and less like Hophni? I mean, 
we have to ask ourselves, where do we fall in this passage? If we kind of characterize the signs, and um, how did they treat sin? I mean, they, they didn't, their sin didn't bother them. I mean, they, they, what, what bothered them in the passage? When, when they were called out by the people bringing the sacrifices, then they get bothered. They're like, you don't do that. They threatened the people who say, you're not honoring God. They were more bothered by not having their stomachs filled with the barbecue of the sacrifices than they were bothered by their sin. And so the question for you and the question for me is, is does our sin bother us? Does our sin bother us? Like, does it affect us? Does it break us down? And what I see is, is that it doesn't. Lots of things bother us. Family things and money things and job things and things we love. Like they, they, Those things, if they're threatened, can bother us. But our sin, for, for a lot of us, it doesn't, it doesn't do anything to us. It's just we, we explain it. It's just who we are. It's just our personality. And, and if it does bother us, we pull out Jesus, and it's just a quick, easy solution. But I would say the person who's not bothered by their sin is more like Hophni and Phinehas than Hannah and Samuel. And the bigger question where does God's judgment go for your sin? Because your, son, your, your sin has to be judged. And so if you think of all, this, all your sin, just you consider it. And you ask, well, well, how is it going to be judged? Is it going to be judged like Hophni and Phinehas? They refused the sacrificial system and said, we'll deal with our sin on ourselves. And then they had to face the judgment of God. I think of a passage like John 3.18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Two options. If you choose to not believe and to face the judgment of God, you, you face the condemnation by not believing, or you can believe. There's a better way to deal with the judgment of God and the reality of your sin. That's through belief in Christ. Romans 8, 3 through 4. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he, listen, he condemned sin in the flesh. That is, he condemned Jesus. He put his wrath and punishment on Jesus. And for us, as we think about who we are in the passage of 1 Samuel 3, for us, the answer is, not the sacrificial system that they spurned, but the answer is we claim Jesus. We run to Jesus in the reality of our sin, and we let his condemnation cover and protect us. And so you have to ask this morning, is my sin covered by the blood of Jesus, by the forgiveness of Jesus? But then the secondary application, and we're out of time, but since we have kids in the room this morning, and we think about how does God call us? How does God speak to us? How does, does God whisper to us? How does God lead? Those, those types of questions. Okay, I want to be very careful 
about taking this passage and how God worked with Samuel and transferring it to us today. So look real quick at <clears throat> verse 21 of chapter 3 of 1 Samuel. <clears throat> because I think this is the key, thinking about God's work today. The Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Shiloh, at Shiloh, by the word of the Lord. God revealed in a very specific situation, very specific setting, by his word to Samuel, through the prophet as the medium to share the word of God with the people. And then we take that idea that God reveals himself through his word. And that in the Old Testament, how did they get the word? The prophets in lots of different ways. Go to Hebrews 1. Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. So it's saying God has spoken through the prophets in lots of ways, through donkeys and fleeces and thunder and lightning and whispers, through name calling. God worked through bushes. I mean, he spoke to the prophets in many ways. But now, but now he speaks to us by his son. Where do we hear from the Son? It is this book. It is this book right here. And so here's what I'm, here's the argument that I'm making. God speaks today through this book right here. And that we need to be careful taking the medium of the Old Testament and putting it in our situation here today. And I think we should be spending a lot more time not listening in the still quiet voice for God in prayer, less time doing that. Wait, like, is God talking? Less of that and more of, I will chew on this book and I will read it and I will study it and I will memorize it and I will pray in it and I will feast on it because this is the, the, the voice of God for us today. This book right here. And so I know that, I'm not saying, let me just say, this is it. I'm not saying God cannot supernaturally, I don't believe that this, that God can't supernaturally speak in different ways. We see it all the time in, in different ways. But that the normative, foundational practice of hearing from God is this book alone right here. And so if this is interesting to you, or this is challenging to you, or you disagree with me, there's an article in the back in the lobby on your way out. I said in the first service that it's recommended, but then I changed my mind. This is required reading. This is, if you want, and I said for membership, but that's too, no, not everyone's members. If you want to come to church here, this is harsh, isn't it? I'd like for you to, it's long, but I would like for you to read it. It's about how God speaks to us today. Um, it's by an apologist, Greg Kukul. We don't agree with everything Greg's going to say in the article, but I think it's spot on about how God speaks to us today. Okay, we're past due. We're going to close with a song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. And my prayer, my hope is that as we sing this song, we would be bothered by our sin. That we would be bothered by our role in the crucifixion of Christ. And that as we're bothered, that same moment we're bothered, that we are flooded with gratitude and worship that his death covers us. So let's pray as we prepare to sing. Father, we thank you.
that we can be covered in our sin. Our sin is a reality. My sin is, it is easy to see. Yet, we thank you that there's atonement, there's sacrifice, and I pray, God, that we would not make light of it like Hophni and Phinehas and Eli did, but that we would cherish it. God, that we don't have a sacrificial system like they did in the Old Testament, that we have your son, Jesus crucified, condemned for us. So God, I pray that as we sing, we would sing with gratitude and overflowing joy for the life and the forgiveness that we have in you. It's in your son's name we pray, amen.